Good morning and welcome to Church of the Cross. My name is Peter. I'm one of the priests here. If you're a guest here, especially, I want to say a special welcome to you. We are so delighted to have you here with us in worship. And it's our hope in some way you'd have a sense of God's grace and goodness towards you this morning. As we come to hear from the living God and his word, let's begin in prayer. Gracious and almighty God, we do give you thanks. We give you thanks for each and every one of your good gifts. And in this moment, here and now in particular, we come to receive from the gift of your word. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to receive the gifts that you would have us from your word this morning. That we might more fully become your own and walk in your ways. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. An old tale tells the story of a once great monastery or abbey now declined and in decay with only five monks left, five brothers. With their order dying, as with so many institutions and communities nearing the end, the the monks had in many ways turned in on one another, were mired in pettiness and contempt. People had stopped visiting long ago as the sense of vitality and life this order once had had waned. The community, in many ways, was turned in on itself. Recognizing this, and in desperation, the abbot reached out to a nearby hermit, renowned for his wisdom and spiritual discernment, looking for his help. Sitting with the hermit, the abbot relayed the dire situation, lamenting the reality of this dying order. And the wise hermit simply sat and listened. And when the tale of woe had run its course, the hermit responded, saying, the only thing I can tell you is the Messiah is among you. The abbot returned to his five monks confused and discouraged. And when asked by his brothers what the hermit had said, he responded, he couldn't help. The only thing he did say as I was leaving was the Messiah is among us, though I know not what those words mean. We're coming to the close in our series through Colossians. This is the second to last sermon in the letter. Sarah Smith will be preaching the final sermon next week. And today's sermon follows in both the text of the letter and in terms of content immediately after last week's sermon. It's a companion piece. If last week's sermon was the negative picture, was about putting off or divesting ourselves of those things that hinder or contradict our identity in Christ, this week's is entirely positive. It's about what is put on, what is cultivated. It's a vision of the new self. To use the analogy of a garden that we used last week, if the first part of Colossians 3 was all about those things that are uprooted and need to be cleared away to make for the garden plot, our reading this morning is all about what has been planted and what needs to be cultivated in the garden of our lives. It's about what grows in Christ and is to grow and bear fruit. With our reading this morning, Colossians 3, 12 to 17, we look at what it is and should be when it comes to the new self, the new self we have in Christ, the new person in Jesus. In looking at our reading this morning and governing our time this morning, we'll really be four observations about the new self. In our reading this morning, we'll see that the new self is chosen, is called, is clothed, and crowned. Chosen, called, clothed, and crowned. Four observations about the new self. 
It was recently Valentine's Day, and perhaps you gave and received something. And perhaps you remember, I certainly do as a student in school, giving and receiving cards and treats in class. I know this still happens because we had to prepare for our kids. I was going to the store February 13th, the evening, to go get some things for Lucy. And the TV show The Simpsons famously lampooned this experience with the character of Ralph Wiggum, poor Ralph Wiggum. Falling in love with Lisa after receiving her card, and he bragged, he celebrated the card. He says, it has a train on it, and it says, choo-choo-choose me. <laughs> we long to be chosen, right? We want to be chosen. The new self in Christ is chosen. It's right there in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. With these words, Paul is returning us to the language at the very beginning of his letter, Colossians, and to the identity of God's people in history. According to the Old Testament, to the excerpt on the front of your service sheet, to be the people of God meant to be a chosen people. The word here for chosen is elect, as in selected, as in the ones for whom God has cast his ballot. God has chosen you in Christ. Jesus himself will say this to his disciples in John 15. He says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And the result of this choosing in our reading is holiness. It's very important we remember that it is the result, not the basis. In this way, verse 12 returns to the very opening verses of Paul's letter where he addresses the Colossians as saints, as holy ones, set apart for special use, holy. We often can think of ourselves as in need of becoming holy that we might be chosen, of putting on that we might become acceptable. But the order that Paul has for us in this letter, the order of the gospel is the exact opposite. We are chosen, and the result is we are made holy. You are chosen just as you are, that you might be something more. And if holy is the result of this choosing, love is its basis, holy and beloved. Some translations put beloved there as dearly loved. Out of God's abundant love, he has chosen that you might be made holy. Emily McGowan, a theologian at Wheaton College and a priest in our diocese, recently turned me on to this quote by John Stott, who said, it cannot be emphasized too strongly that God's love is the source, not the consequence of what he did on the cross. His love is the source. God does not love because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. Those who are in Christ are made new because of God's love and out of that love, his choosing of you. Many of us have come to believe that the way to a better and new self, a whole new you, as the phrase goes, is through our own striving, through our physical exertion, through the strength of our wills, perhaps even through the products we can buy. Can I acquire the right stuff, the tools that will make me new? We've come to believe that our newness is the result of our own decisions, the strength of our own will. But the good news of the whole of Scripture 
is that you are made new by God's will and choosing on the basis of his love. And there is so much more security in that. Because his love is stronger, his will is unchanged, it doesn't flag or fail. You are chosen. The new self is chosen, chosen by God. The second observation we can make about the new self is that it is called. Specifically, called into one body. Called together. As it says in verse 15. I should have pointed this out last week, but didn't. And thankfully, it's true of our reading this morning as well. But the Apostle Paul is almost Texan in his use of second-person plural pronouns. The yous throughout the entirety of chapter 3 are plural. They're y'alls and all y'alls and that sort of thing. The vision of the new self is communal, called to life together. And this truth is further confirmed when we consider the vices from last week, right? There's a list of things to put off, to put to death. And the virtues and practices commended this week, both are communal, right? They're related to how we live together, how we relate to one another. Put off exploitation and abuse. Put on the practices of love and grace. The vision of the new self is not this heroic individual, self-made and solitary, standing off by themselves, self-sufficient, self-actualized. Rather, the new self is one who's called to and become a member of a body, a part of a larger whole. Swiss theologian Karl Barth once wrote, it is impossible to be called a Christian and then subsequently called or not called into the church. You cannot be called to Christ and not be called to his church. To be called to Christ, to be in Christ, is to be called in to the church. And this is such tremendous good news, that we are called to be together. Because we live in a time of great isolation, great estrangement. It was the year 2000, the study Bowling Alone, or even last year, the New York Times article published The Epidemic of Loneliness. We recognize more and more in this nation, in, the West, in Western society, that people are reporting deeper feelings of aloneness and alienation. A few of us were talking and praying about this passage this week and the life that it commands, the behaviors it suggests. And as we were talking, one of the things that came to the fore, a lament, was how only very few relationships exhibit the kind of life that Colossians here talks about, that Paul talks about here in Colossians. It's only in very few relationships that we think we even have the hope of experiencing the kind of forgiveness, the kind of grace, the kind of intimacy that Paul suggests here. Christians are called to life together in one body, but for so many of us that is experienced in a fleeting and half-hearted way. In Christ, we are called together. We're called to something different and more than, is, that in, than what is on offer in our world. Psalm 68, verse 6 declares, God settles the solitary in homes. He sets the lonely in families. There is no such thing as the solitary Christian. To be called to Christ is to be called to one body, to a whole that is greater than yourself. 
and called to a community of significant depth, right? A knowing and being known that is significant. The language of the peace of Christ in verse 15 is less about inner peace, though we certainly can experience that in Christ. It's more about, however, unity or shalom in the community that is in Christ. With Christ at the center, there is peace among peoples from different backgrounds, with different perspectives, from different cultures. There is a unity. We're called together to one body. And the instruction of verse 15 is, as new people in Christ, as the new self, is to let that unity, let that peace rule and reign. The word actually is the word that we might use for umpire or referee. Let the peace of Christ, the unity we have in him, be decisive. Don't allow the differences or resentments we have that would cause division in the world to fray what is true that we have in Christ, that we are one body. The depth of this unity of this community is further shown, I think, in the instructions to bear with one another, to forgive complaints. We'll say more about these in a few minutes, but I love the realism of these instructions. There is the expectation that people are going to need bearing with. You're going to have to put up with and care for people you may not otherwise prefer to. I know this is entirely theoretical for Church of the Cross. This is about other churches, of course. There's a realism to it. In the reality of complaints, it's to be expected that there will be cause for complaint. That people have sharp elbows and to be called together means you might get bruised or wounded. This isn't a surprise. It speaks to this deep life together. Some of you know my youngest, my son, he's playing t-ball this year again. And we're part of the team and the parents are all there. And everyone's really nice. And there's kind of a modicum of community that we experience. We all gather around, we cheer the team and someone provides snacks and there's the coach and we all say, thanks coach. And then we walk and we go home and everyone gets along. There's a level of community. It's hard to imagine there being much occasion for complaint with the level of community we have. It's pretty superficial. But if you start to get deeper, if you start to share life, if you start to know and be known, all of a sudden you get under the surface. You get subterranean, as it were. And you find there's, oh, I don't like that about that person. I don't agree. Or that hurt my feelings. This speaks to the depth of community that we're called together and called to something more. This is good news. You're called to be known. We're called to know one another. I'm keenly aware that for many of us, the experience of church falls far short of this. And the idea of being called deeper into community or in unity, maintaining that, is hard to receive as good news. You've told me the stories. The stories of hurt and despair, of disappointment, of longing for something more, of being let down in vulnerability. Some of you have that experience in the context of Church of the Cross even. We fall short of this. And such things should not happen. And as a representative of the church, allow me to say I am sorry for the ways you have been failed. 
for the ways you have not experienced the peace of Christ, the oneness, the call of life together in him. But let me also say that your experiences do not revoke the call of God. You have been chosen. You have been called as a member. Therefore, you belong. You have a place, a part to play. And the newness of life you desire, the new life which you long for in your bones, for which you were made, can only be found in life together. In chapter 41 of his book, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah speaks in the words of God. He says, you, you my friend, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will help and strengthen you. I will uphold you. That is his word to you this day. And his call is for life together. So we've seen chosen and called. Related to this reality that the new self is called to life together in one body is the reality that the new self is clothed clothed in grace. Last week, earlier in chapter 3, we saw the language of clothing and the idea of putting away or putting off the old self and the practices associated with it. And in our reading this morning, we have a list of virtues, of behaviors that are put on in their place to be put on as a part of the person made new in Christ. Virtues like compassionate hearts, like kindness, humility, patience, and meekness. Practices like forgiveness and thanksgiving. These practices, I think, are particularly important, forgiveness and thanksgiving. In both the terms that are used, forgiveness and thanksgiving, have in them, in the original language, the word charis, the word grace. Some take the word translated as forgive in verse 13 to mean more broadly, be gracious to one another. Both these actions, forgiveness and thanksgiving, are those that arise within the context of God's grace. We are saved by grace, by God's unmerited favor. And we now live as those in Christ in the context of the grace that has been shown to us, God's unfolding grace. The most important reality for us, the most fundamental identity, the most important story is the one of God's gracious actions toward his creation, toward us. His great act of grace in creation, the sending of his son to die upon the cross for our redemption, his defeat of death in the resurrection of Jesus, the sending of his spirit to give new life, the coming of his kingdom, the making new of all things that is sure and certain, grace upon grace. And this story, this gracious story, is the defining reality for those in Christ. So our lives take on the hue, the tenor, the glow of grace. We live in the context of God's gracious gifts. This is the basis of the words we heard in the gospel this morning. This challenge, turn the other cheek. Give if you're asked. The only way those are life-giving words is if it's not actually true that we live in the situation of scarcity. 
if we live actually in a world of abundance. The only way those words are life-giving, if we live in the context of God's grace, his goodness, his gracious gifts towards us, the unfolding of that. The instruction in verse 16 of our reading is to let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. This is less about a specific teaching of Jesus or the scriptures, and it's more about the message that is communicated in the whole of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. And his life is a word of grace. As we let that word, the declaration of all that God has done in Jesus, dwell among us, be at the center of our life and our lives, the grace of it may come forward in our lives, manifest in forgiveness and thanksgiving, in the virtues we see listed in verse 12. Gracious actions arising from the context of the grace we've received, clothed in grace. In the story we began with, the monks and the abbot and the hermit, in the months following, the monks begin to ponder the words of the hermit and consider their possible significance. The Messiah here among us? Could he have meant that the Messiah is one of us monks here at the monastery? Why would the Messiah meet us here in this place? And in the context of this possibility, the Messiah's gracious visitation and presence among them, and that one of them might be him, something new arose in the common life of the Abbey. As they contemplated the grace of the Messiah's presence, the possibility of it, the previously cantankerous monks began to bear with one another. They began to look past their complaints and one another's faults, and their common life began to take on joy and thanksgiving, such that those passing by sought to stay and linger some eventually to join the order. And over the years, the monastery was revived and the abbey became known as a haven of blessing and peace. Clothed in grace. The story is simple, perhaps a bit saccharine, I'll grant you that, but the point rings true. Mindful of the grace that we have received, letting it dwell in us richly, we become gracious. Those in Christ are called to these things because of the grace we have received. We put on the actions of grace, forgiving one another. We burst forth in thanksgiving, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, such that our life together begins to bear witness to the truth of God's graciousness, to a hurting and lonely, estranged world. The fifth verse of Francis Assisi's hymn, All Creatures of Our God and King, speaks to this when he says, Everyone tender of tender heart, forgiving others, take your part. O sing ye, alleluia, ye who long pain and sorrow bear, praise God and on God cast your care. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. I love those lines. For there's the reality of our cares, our pain, our sorrow. But there is also the recognition that we live in the story of unfolding grace. And that gives us reason to sing, to praise God, to sing alleluia, and to take our part in extending the grace that we have received. 
This is what it means together to put on the new self. The virtues listed, the behaviors commanded in our reading are those that are occasioned by grace. We put them on following the example of Christ and the character of God we see in him. An interesting thing is that each of the virtues listed in verse 5 are virtues elsewhere used in some way to describe the character of God and Christ. As followers of Jesus, we take our place in God's renewal of his creation by putting on these same practices, these same virtues. If you would like to be made new, put on grace. Clothe yourself in it. How might the truth of God's grace inform your week ahead? How might the unmerited favor, the abundant goodness of what we have received in Jesus affect the way you interact in your home, with your family, with others, your friends, your interactions with colleagues and coworkers? How might the reality of Christ's Spirit being with you, this gracious gift, inform how you respond to setback, disappointment, to failure, wrongdoing, and complaint? What might it mean to receive grace today and clothe yourself in it for the days ahead? Our Old Testament reading with Joseph gives us a picture of this. Such confidence in the sovereignty of God and his gracious action, in his gracious plan that will not be frustrated, that he's able to be gracious to his brothers. Clothe yourself in grace. As we've seen, there are a variety of virtues and practices commended in our reading today. Forgiveness and thanksgiving make multiple appearances. The other virtues reflect the character of God. But it is the virtue of love that receives special mention, that uniquely stands out. Verse 14, above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the basis of our being chosen of Christ's action toward us, and it is the crown of the new self. The new self is crowned in love. I'm mixing metaphors here a little, as most scholars suggest that Paul envisioned here love as a belt or a cloak, a coat going over all the other virtues, surrounding them, bringing them together, this binding or unifying force. You think of someone wearing a parka or a trench coat, stuffed with layers underneath it. Those are the other virtues, and love is around it as this coat. But crowned sounds so much better than cloaked, right? And the truth of the matter is that Paul does hold love in this prime place as this virtue above all others. It's the crowning virtue, as 1 Corinthians 13 attests to. It is the greatest of virtues. How could it be any other way for Paul? who knows God to be the Father of Jesus Christ, the one who showed love for us in Christ's death while we were still sinners, who pours out his love upon us in the Holy Spirit. We see it in our colic today, right? Without love, we can do nothing of worth. Love is the greatest of virtues, and it, it is for us in so many different ways. The greatest of virtues is love. We celebrate it. We sing about it. But the truth of the matter is we're often confused about love. Is Beyonce right? Am I supposed to be crazy in love? Or was that old movie with Ryan O'Neill right? Love means never having to say you're sorry. What's love got to do with it anyway? We're confused about love. 
its true nature and quality. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight suggests that for Paul, love is a rugged commitment to another person, to be with them and for them as you both journey to Christ-likeness. Love is a rugged commitment to another person to be with them and for them as you both journey to Christ-likeness. A rugged commitment, one that endures. To be with and for, moving toward Christ. This virtue, this love is what crowns the new self. This is what binds together and is to be most clear in our lives in Christ, in our life together. We're crowned in love. Verse 17 speaks of doing all we do in the name of the Lord. To do in the name of God the Father of Jesus Christ. To do it in the name of Jesus. That is, to do it in the name of this kind of love. Covenantal. To be with and for. Journeying toward Christ. Immediately following our reading this morning is what's known as a household code in verses 18 and on. And these household codes involve instructions for wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. And how that code applies to our lives today is something that scholars debate and is challenging. But the context coming just after this language of grace and love, of being crowned in love, suggests to us that however those words apply, we're to love one another as husband and wife. We're to exist as children and parents. We're to even exist as servants and masters in the context of this love, the love that we have received and the love to which we are called. The life of one in Christ is crowned in love. So this is what we have seen of the new self. The new self is chosen by God, called to life together, clothed in grace and crowned in love. What does that look like? What does it look like for a community, a community made new in Christ? The East African revival was this remarkable multi-decade thing in the middle of the 20th century, from 1920 onward, primarily in the countries of Uganda and Rwanda. It has far-reaching, ongoing impact even today. And one of the most remarkable aspects of the revival was the way that the church corporately came to live together as new people clothed in grace, crowned in love. And I think one particular story might help as we close to make concrete some of what we are reading about this morning. One story from rural Uganda tells the story of a newly converted married couple, husband and wife. And the husband had just been offered a job in Kampala to work for Texaco in the capital city. And this job represented a significant opportunity but also the opportunity, the possibility of compromise, they felt, in their newfound faith. So recognizing that they were called together, the couple came before the church community to seek discernment about this opportunity, and specifically around two particular questions, areas of concern. One, they had been told that they needed to get insurance when they moved to Kampala. Such was the danger of robbery and crime. Their things were in danger and could be lost. They should be insured. Second, the couple had been instructed to get a watchdog, a security dog, a dog trained to attack and subdue intruders as a means of protecting their own lives and their property against violence. 
to us in the West and to the American who tells this story, on first blush, those don't even seem like real problems, real concerns, perhaps. But for the couple and the community, they wrestled with what these seeming necessities meant. Was having insurance a contradiction of the command that those in Christ should have no thought of tomorrow? When attacked by an enemy, are we not called to turn the other cheek? Some in their community felt this opportunity was God's provision, and others questioned if this was not an invitation, a temptation toward worldliness. In the community led by men and women like William Naganda, who's this remarkable leader in the East African revival, together wrestled with these questions. They prayed, they sung, they talked, they reflected and waited upon the Lord, together as one body chosen by God. Eventually led by the elders and prompted by the Holy Spirit, the community discerned, they came to a decision. They discerned that the couple could take this opportunity. And as they would no longer be able to receive the immediate care of this congregation, their local community, they should inquire insurance to sustain themselves in the event of grievous loss. However, when it came to the dog, the watchdog, and to other potentially violent security measures, the community discerned the couple should not use these. The purchase of such a weapon and other measures would suggest the prioritizing of their own lives over that of others, even enemies. And they understood the word of Christ, a central truth of the gospel, to be that Christ graciously died for his enemies. To this truth, the community claimed, we must all bear witness. And living in this way with this watchdog was understood then to be a false witness. And the report concluded by saying the community rejoiced. They received this as the word of the Spirit. And they closed the meeting singing spiritual songs, confident in the way God had led his church. We don't have time to unpack all that that story has in it. But it is powerful and evocative. It was for me. And I want to suggest to you that in that story are embedded the four qualities of the new self we have seen today. The reality, the confidence that the members of this community have been chosen by God. That they can expect to hear from him. The reality that they've been called together, radically so, right? They will care for one another's material provision. They will be there in the moment of decision, supporting, listening together. And clothed in grace, wrestling long and hard for one another, and crowned in love with the love of God in Christ. They're all embodied in that story. It's obviously a different context, different culture, but there is much to challenge, I think, and encourage us this day as we consider what it is to be made new in Christ and the call of Christ in our life. And think of the witness of that community. Think of the power of such sense of togetherness, of being chosen, of putting on grace and love. There is an example for us to follow as those chosen by God, called together, clothed in grace and crowned in love. This is who you are, Church of the Cross. This is who we are. Let us live like it. Let's pray.
gracious and almighty God. We praise you for your mercy, your grace, your goodness. We praise you for how out of your love you sent your son to die upon the cross for us. You sent him who had no sin to be sin for us. We praise you, I praise you for the way that you have chosen each and every one here. You have called each and every one here to yourself. With the truth of that, of your choosing, he made very real in our hearts in this moment. Such that we would be freed from striving, from the pressure of measuring up. And would you, by your gracious spirit, remind and confirm that we are made one body, that we are called to one another, such that we are made free of loneliness, estrangement, and division. And would you even now anoint and clothe us with, clothe us with your grace, that we might forgive one another, that we might bear long with one another and care for one another. That we might have compassionate hearts, meekness, patience, kindness, O oh Lord. And would you crown us with love such that our life together would be a testimony to your strong, never-ending love. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.